Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is Nick, and I'm your host again as we do Beyond Luther Part 5, and this is Part 2 of our little Puritan discussion. Um, And a quick little funny note was that I had a patron make fun of me uh, for mispronouncing Ann Boland's name because she's kind of a big deal. The reality is whenever I'm doing these episodes and I'm going through the information, sometimes my... My tongue and my mind don't sync up correctly, so that's just the way it goes. Anyway, in the last episode, we framed the discussions on the Puritans, and we closed the episode by leaving England and moving on to North American colonies. So worth noting at the beginning of this episode um, is that there were Puritans that remained in England with hopes to reform the Church of England still. Um, And again... A reminder that Puritans, by definition, were those who were dissidents of the Anglican Church. They wanted to reform the church. They were Anglicans who wanted to reform. Now, whenever we get over to North America, we find that there are predominant Anglican colonies there. Um, And I didn't really look into it, but I would assume that within those colonies, you had the, I guess, the loyal... Anglican party who who still were Puritans in the sense that they wanted to reform the church were there, but that's just kind of an assumption on my part based off of how things looked in England. Um, so I would contest that the most famous colonies were the separatists, right? The ones who broke away from the church of England in order to live and worship freely as they pleased. And so they founded those colonies that were essentially political religious independence from the church state of England. And so this, these were the Puritans who went so far as to become separatists. Now, when talking about the English Reformation, there's a lot that just happened and rippled over in England. In fact, it's tempting to talk about the Westminster Assembly and the London Baptists, but perhaps that will be next year's theme for Beyond Luther. So let's kind of get into it. By 1663, you would find colonies that spanned from Virginia to Maine, And at this time, you would find a variety of congregations. You would have Roman Catholic, Anglicans, Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed. There's a singular uh, Quaker uh, congregation. And then the Congregationalists. And the Congregationalists would actually be the Puritans, who were the Separatists. And this was all along the East Coast, right? So within the British colonies, you would have mostly the Anglican churches, which makes sense. It's the Church of England. And then you would have a few Roman Catholics. And then, of course, you would have our... Puritan separatists. Um, and we're focusing on the English colonies, so that, that will suffice. Of course, the Quaker and the Baptist congregations can be found within English territory, um, but we're going to speak mostly to those um, colonies in New England, uh, which is made up of Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, right? Um, so first, let's start off by sum- summarizing the primary convictions of the Puritans. And we gave uh, Nick Needham's excellent definition of Puritanism 
and the first part or part four of Beyond Luther. But here we want to look at their main convictions and um, we'll talk about how that rippled and how that affected things going forward. And for this, I'm going to rely on Mark Knoll's organization. Um, again, check the resources on this. You can pick up the books that I used for both of these episodes. Mark Knoll's um, The History of Christianity in uh, North America and Canada is a, a great book. And that's the one that's my primary reference for this particular episode. Um, because Nick Needham, he stops um, at the colonies. He doesn't go beyond um, Europe and England. He stays over there. I think in his next volume he's going to do that, but I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, the, the first primary conviction of the Puritans that's worth noting is that mankind must depend wholly on God for salvation. Uh, but again, contrary to many um, histories, not all Puritans were Calvinists. Um, and it's also worth noting that Arminianism historically is considered a branch of the Reformed movement. Um, so one could say that there, that the convictions of the Puritans was more Augustinian. Uh, you could see variety from like Lutheran soteriology to Calvin soteriology to um, straight Presbyterian, Dutch, but then you'd have a few Arminian Puritans. Um, so to say that they're all Calvinists it can be misleading. So Augustinian may be the best way to put it, but uh, regardless, there was a heavy emphasis on God's um, grace and the, the dependence of man on God wholly for salvation. So just as well, there's a heavy emphasis by the Puritans on conversion and tracing the steps of conversion from, from rebellion to obedience. There was a big uh, to-do about this. Uh, and they also stressed the authority of Scripture, which utilized a regulative principle of life and worship, which simply means that they would only do what Scripture directly and explicitly states. And this would differ from their Anglican and Lutheran uh, brothers as the Anglican and Lutheran tradition held to what we would probably call a normative principle that advocated that believers should do nothing prohibited by Scripture. Um, of course, as we mentioned before, and as it has always been historically, the regulative principle was interpreted differently and thus applied differently in different Puritan circles, uh, which makes it hard to come to a monolithic description of what this looks like and what could and could not be done. Um, and this idea of, you know, unified understandings um, is also misleading if we think about it in terms of ecclesiology, that is church organization. Um, some preferred a Presbyterian church-state model. Uh, where churches are ruled by elected elders, and the elders um, meet and guide the church with the state actively supporting the church. But for the most part, um, Puritans who landed in New England, which is our focus, landed into a congregationalist ecclesiology. Um, but their distinguishing mark from the Anabaptists uh, was that essentially they held that churches are organized individually, but they are to cooperate with governments and to promote the reformation of society. And if you don't know, the Anabaptists were typically, they're, they're not monolithic either, but they were typically known for separating entirely from uh, the state and trying to separate the church from government, while the Puritans thought that the government should um, cooperate with the church for the reformation of society as a whole. Um, that all said, there were a few Puritans who held that the Bible mandated a complete separation from church and state. Um, so moving on, another point of Puritan perspective was that society was a unified whole. Uh, and this means that the church and state, uh, the individual and the corporate body, 
uh, could not be divided or unrelated. They, they, they had to be related because um, all of their worldview was holistic. Political issues were spiritual issues, and spiritual issues affected political issues. Um, they held that these things were complementary and connected by God's act of creation and providence. Um, this mentality actually drove much of the Puritanism in England, right, uh, to reform the church, which was a, a state church, and then this carried over into North America. Mark Knoll notes, quote, The results of this Puritan conviction were decidedly mixed. On one hand, it led to the high-handedness and intolerance that Puritans sometimes displayed in both Britain and America when they were in control. And since they presumed to know the will of God so clearly, they felt it was only right that they could force others to comply, even if those others did not understand God in the same way they did. On the other hand, this belief allowed the Puritan faith to break free from the narrow religiosity and shape substantial sphere of life. Puritan activity has something to do with the promotion of democracy. It liberated great energy into literary uh, creativity. It provided a foundation for the first great political revolution of modern times. It offered a supportive environment for the rise of modern science in Britain. It gave several thousand immigrants the courage to brave the howling wilderness of the new world. And it gave those colonists a social vision of the comprehensive character of which has rarely been matched in America. Um, and those things all still ripple to this day, and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, but lastly, the Puritans believe that God works with people through covenants and agreements. Um, so everything was, um, every kind of pact, every kind of um, um, organization had this idea of covenants and blessings for obedience and and curses for disobedience, right? Um, and this would be reflected in how they lived their day-to-day, especially in that the Puritans held that God enters into covenants with nations and that the Bible was to teach nations how to receive blessings. And of course, um, the way that they got to this understanding was by looking at the Old Testament and Israel and thus moving that application um, to their settings and nations. Of course, you see that with nations outside of Israel as well who received judgments or blessings based off of repentance um, and um, disobedience. So you see this being set up first in England um, and then later the colonies whenever they felt that they could no longer do anything for um, England because it was too corrupt. So with this all in view, the Puritans departed from England uh, when there seemed to be no more hope for Reformation. Uh, And in 1682, a group of Puritans formed a trading company that essentially moved from commerce to colonization. They would basically be sponsors of colonies um, or the move rather. So this would lead to the movement of thousands of settlers. And um, as noted by Mark Knoll, not all of these early settlers actually had the same zeal as the Puritans in a religious sense, but their leaders were um, very religious and zealous um, and idealist in terms of you know, Puritanism and those who came with them who weren't of that inclination were happy to live within the society ordered by Puritan beliefs because they wanted to be a part of what was going on in quote unquote, the new world. So the first English colony was actually in Virginia in 1607. And this is Jamestown. Now, whenever you read up on Jamestown, you'll find that there's a heavy um, articulation of it being extremely secular. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, there's a little bit of talk about it having cannibalism. I can't remember if I mentioned that in the first part, so I'm just kind of uh, restating that here. Um, but ultimately, Jamestown was initially founded with with a more predominant concern on trading and profit, right? It wasn't as religiously charged as the other colonies of the Puritans, but it was religious, and you see that flowing through Virginia. 
it just wasn't with the same intentional rigor. Um, and so again, there's this weird mixture of over-exaggerated secularism mixed with um, religious zeal. So it's kind of hard to navigate what Jamestown was really like. Uh, but regardless, religious life did have a place in the colony. Um, in fact, in 1610, Lord de la War became a new acting governor of the area and he established worship services um, whereby the legal code made that attendance on Sunday mandatory. And there were various and harsh laws against violations of this view of Sabbath, adultery, and excessive dress. Um, but really, ultimately, the Church of England was the colony's established church. And so this is where you'd find the bulk of Anglican churches on, on the east coast of North America. So whenever we get to New England, we first meet Plymouth, and we find a more firm picture of Puritanism in its fully separatist form. Um, we noted this a bit at the end of part one, so we won't rehash it too much. But ultimately, these pilgrims gained sponsorship by those English merchants, the trading company. And so they faced a long journey on the Mayflower. And then they landed in Cape Cod after they were sailing to Virginia, but they got um, knocked off track. So they got to Cape Cod. They decided to stay. And all the male passengers signed an agreement where the motives of the colony were laid out. And this was, of course, known as the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact would be looked back on by future generations and would have a massive impact on government and modern democracy, right? Um, and it basically um, expresses um, that they have undertaken for the glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith for honor of king and country, um, this voyage to the new world, right? To plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. And so they present... Um, in the presence of God, a covenant, and combine themselves together as a civil body politic for better ordering and preserving and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. Of course, I just quoted that in part. That's kind of weird. I should have just quoted it directly. But regardless, we find them landing there. They have their initial ideas set up, and for the first winter, half the pilgrims died. It was a rough winter as they tried to establish themselves, and the colony found themselves with roughly 300 residents in 1630. The colony after that flourished um, and will remain in our history books as such. So that's like the, the first major colony. But Puritanism was predominating in four American colonies. Plymouth, Massachusetts, uh, which actually absorbed Plymouth in 1691. And then you had New Haven and Connecticut. New Haven is often considered the, the most strict examples of Puritanism in North America. And this was led by a John Davenport and Theophilus Eden. Honestly, the fact that people in this time had names Theophilus, just, I, I find it really cool, though some people think it's still odd. Anyway, there's a weird sidebar. Um, within these colonies, there was a greater stress on genuine conversion, like we mentioned before. And the Massachusetts ministers and magistrates would put forward a standard to reflect that conversion. So those who desire to be members of the church would have to live moral lives first accept Puritan doctrine, confess it in front of the community, um, their doctrine and their testimony, and then they would have to have it confirmed as credible, and then they could form a membership covenant. Um, those who met these requirements were those who were allowed to uh, be a part of the church and then operate in political positions as well. So for the Puritans, the covenant of grace allowed a person to become a member of the church and vote in the colony's public life. So political and theological life were closely placed together. Now, in this way, the, the Puritans made it where an individual would be in a position of political influence, but only in so much 
that they had been accepted into the church. So there's a little bit of debate here, but ultimately from what I understand and from what Mark Knoll expresses, it wasn't a theocracy, but it was just basically godly individuals who were political advisors of sorts for magistrates or put in the position of magistrates by being a part of the church. That's where it kind of becomes a little bit unclear about what was exactly going on there. There may be more research for you to do there. Um, I just didn't have time to go into that. Regardless, in 1648, Massachusetts settlers put together the Cambridge Platform. Uh, and this was basically an apologetics of sort for congregationalism. They were trying to make their argument for congregationalism because of critiques of congregationalism. Um, and what's interesting is that this platform accepted the Westminster Confession on all matters except for ecclesiology. Uh, which would be the church government. Um, so this platform noted that groups of ministers recognized as um, authoritative in the Presbyterian ecclesiology were only advisors in local churches um, and that they wouldn't be held as definitive authorities. They're just advisors. Kind of interesting. Uh, so they, they held their ground on congregationalism and they wrote a whole defense of it. Additionally, the platform noted that magistrates who were godly were allowed to have influence in church matters. So apparently there was some kind of dispute there. Again, another area you may want to research. Um, so in addition to all this, the Puritans stressed education. That was a big thing. So in 1636, the Massachusetts legislator um, authorized a college led by a John Harvard. Harvard College uh, became the primary means of educating future ministers, but it wasn't only for that. I've kind of seen that, and, I've, and I used to think that too. It wasn't just focused on educating ministers. It was focused on general education as well. Um, children were also expected to be educated. And in 1642, it was noted that leaders would be fined if children were not trained to read and understand the principles of religion and capital laws. And in 1647, a law would be passed that ordered each town of at least 50 households to appoint a teacher over the town. So those towns that would have a teacher would have all of their children educated by that appointed teacher. Um, Puritans also were, of course, famously writers and poets, and that's really how we know them most of all. Um, and so they showed themselves to be, without a doubt, one of the most educated communities during this entire era, which is really neat. Now, for worship, Puritans gathered in meeting houses, which were just basically large centralized buildings in the community. And initially, they sang only the Psalms. Um, and they did so without instruments because they viewed... Um, hymns and instruments to be Roman Catholic in persuasion, but eventually they would change this beginning in the 1700s. So for the Puritans, um, in terms of what their service looked like, sermons were the heart of the service. There were regular sermons, which were preached twice on a Sunday. And then there were occasional sermons, which were used for um, the first meeting of each year of legislators, special days of fasting or Thanksgiving uh, before militia companies or other special um, occasions. Typically, sermons included um, the covenant of grace in regular sermons, and then the national covenant in occasional moments. So the first one, the former would be that of the gospel, right, to remind people of the gospel, and the second would be that of society and, and proclaiming that the society would flourish if the redeemed sinners did good works in society. Mark Knoll notes here that at first, the mission was both to restore the primary purity of early Christianity and to be a city on the hill for those who remained in Europe. By the late 18th century, the New England mission was often described in more general terms as a search for liberty, a search that could have both religious and political connotations. So as expected, the Puritans would have struggles and troubles to deal with because that's, that's life. And this becomes particularly notable 
when the children grew and married with their own children. And the reason why this was an issue was because these adults who bore children were baptized as infants themselves, yet they never made a profession, uh, yet they also desired to baptize their infants and children. So the church was in a, in a weird position where, well, should we baptize these children who have baptized parents who never made a profession, right? Because they had that strict understanding of conversion. So wanting to keep the church for genuine believers, but also wanting to keep people under the influence of the church, the Puritans developed a halfway covenant so that the second generation of New Englanders could bring in their children to be baptized for halfway membership. In 1662, this plan was solidified. It it wasn't uniform. Not everyone was happy with it. It caused internal uh, struggles uh, with um, this Puritan purity, um, but that's what happened. Other issues, of course, came about um, specifically with warfare with the natives. And then in 1685, James II, who was a Roman Catholic, um, reigned in the colonies by taking away their representatives and instead get, putting them underneath uh, a new administration, uh, the Administrative Dominion of New England. And eventually James would be uh, replaced via Parliament um, in 1688. But by this time, Massachusetts actually had a new charter that had a more secular government structure than that which was before. And basically, uh, what would happen was the king would appoint the governor and he would establish the right to vote on the basis of property ownership opposed to church membership. So other than that, you actually do have those other colonies getting their self-rule back, but government had changed in between a little bit. But most famous of all these um, disruptions or issues has to be what occurred in Salem. Everyone knows about this in 1692, which is Salem is north of Boston, right? And Mark Knoll notes that persecution and execution for witchcraft was by no means unknown in New England, but the alarm at Salem went much further than previous incidents. A number of factors fueled the alarm, political strife between Salem Village and the larger town of Salem, voodoo practices associated with a West Indian slave, the recent republication of an ancient book presented ways to combat witchcraft, and recent tension with the French and natives. Um, and basically there was this general idea of spiritual decline based off of everything else that was going on that just added more fuel to the fire. So all this eventually festered into hysteria and led to months of anguish and 20 executions. And the entire situation actually ended when accusations arose against individuals who were considered spotless within the community morally. Um, and Noel's qualification here becomes important um, because Salem usually gets focused on as this big blunder, which, while it was pretty um, absurd, if we're honest, um, he says, quote, even given the number of supposed witches killed at Salem, the number of executions for witchcraft in New England was proportionally less than most of the countries in Western Europe, end quote. In fact, a lot of times we don't really hear about the witch trials that occurred overseas. Um, regardless, New England came to think of Salem as a place where the devil was hyperactive and that's how that lives on. So while there is much that could be said and many more other topics that we could discuss, such as the Great Awakening, um, if we focus on the Puritans solely, we will ultimately find that the heirs of the Puritans who lived on and had their views um, you know, carried forward had a big impact on religion and politics in North America, even to this day in many ways. So... This is where you could play the kind of the exercise of how does this apply to us today? And uh, we, we find that ultimately this is 
um, particularly clear whenever we get to the idea of republicanism, which arose back in the 18th century. And this is basically this weird bond between Puritanism and Republicanism because of how much they had in common in terms of ideals. Um, and this basically was a major moving point for the American Revolution, right? The emphasis on virtue, freedom, and social well-being uh, would have the Puritan ethics lay the groundwork for independence from England um, as they were separatists already themselves. So for some Christians, like in England, there was a loyal submission to be had with Britain, but for others, there was also pacifism. So it wasn't always monolithic, but for the majority, you find them becoming what you would call patriots. Um, the movement, not necessarily like, I'm a patriot in, in spirit or whatever you want to call it, but like the movement known as the patriots. Um, so those who were acquainted with Puritan heritage found duty to be linked with public service and being a public servant and thus sacrificing their private gain for the public good, which in this case would be the freedom to be separate from England, which was corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. So just the same perseverance in the face of ad adversary was another driving force. And then Puritan ideals also shaped American democracy and freedoms. There's papers and articles written till the cows come home on that. Other Christian influences came into play, of course. Um, you see this with Dutch, German, and Presbyterian churches, um, where just war had been a long line of consideration. Even if you look at like people like Jan Hus and the wars, he was like a mercenary, and he was one of the early reformers before the Reformation even started, right? Um, so anyway, the Reformed voices would sometimes even take up the theme of a chosen nation in their patriotism, um, though, again, this is not monolithic. Now, the more revolutionary Christian chatter came from New England, uh, and this could be due to, again, the early Puritan separatist mentality that broke them from England uh, so that they could have the freedom to live and worship as they pleased, or it could be due to their emphasis on covenant between God and nations. In either case, for those in New England, their mentality was that God had called the people to religious and political freedom in the New World and would give them the strength to break from the tyrannical rule of parliament. Um, of course, this zeal by the early patriots um, is particularly well known with the Boston Tea Party, which is one of those things like, was that ethical? You know, it's, that's an interesting exercise as well, whether or not the Boston Tea Party was ethical. But regardless, um, the first battles were in Massachusetts. Anyway, during this time, people would be shocked to know that sermons encouraged a defense of political liberty um, and this would ripple to the Presbyterians in New Jersey and the Baptists in the South. Um, and then those who were clergymen of the Church of England would eventually come to denounce Parliament. So you'd have sermons basically rallying troops for the revolution, um, which is, I, I can think of how that would be perceived in our day and age, and it's just interesting. But I digress because I don't like going into those weeds here. Um, all in all, um, the whole point is that whenever we begin with the English Reformation and we look at the controversy with vestments, remember the, the robes they ha would have to wear during service and how this eventually rippled over into Puritanism and then how this rippled over into separatism and then it rippled over to the, to the colonies and then governance and then congregationalists and then we look at how that affected uh, the, the revolution and then how all of those principles just kept dominoing and moving and rippling and then here we are today. So it's just... One of those things where it's a fascinating case study to look at, you you think of the Reformation, and you can think about all the moving parts, right? You can think about Martin Luther and Wittenberg, and the, the Lutheran Reformation, and then you can think of 
Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and the Reformation that occurred there and then how they influenced those who were hiding from Bloody Mary uh, during the English Reformation and then how the English Reformation, it just goes on and on. So the Reformation has touched so many aspects of life that sometimes we can miss how it all just snowballed into what we see today. Um, so this was, again, more of a historical episode than a theological one. Though we can sit back and say the Reformation was God's providence to spark zeal for his word and for purity. And ultimately, we owe a lot of theological insights, spiritual insights from the Lutherans, from the Reformed tradition, from the Puritans. And of course, thus far, we're in part five of Beyond Luther, and we haven't really gotten into a good handful of other things that were occurring at this time. I mean, even if we talk about the Westminster Assembly and how they influenced the Puritans who would eventually adopt it into their charter, of course, with the modification of ecclesiology, but you still see how that ripples, and that's overseas. Like, they're, they're still moving parts across across the big blue, right? And then you have, of course, the writings of these individuals. We didn't even really touch on specific people and their writings and how they influenced us, but it just goes to show there's a lot more than just Luther for the Reformation and what came from the Reformation. And so that's what this highlights. Um, the applications and the conclusions you want to draw from that, um, that's kind of up to you. This is predominantly historical, and I hope it kind of demonstrates that history is fascinating. Um, especially whenever you think about how we got from point A to point Z. And that all said, um, it feels appropriate that if you want to pick up a beautiful devotional, I'd recommend The Valley of Vision put out by Banner of Truth. Just look up The Valley of Vision book and buy it. It is a collection of prayers by the Puritans, and they are excellent. One of the best devotionals I've ever had. In fact, I've gifted it to several people because it's just excellent. And they have different ones for different theological categories and then different times of day. And then um, if you're in ministry, they have a couple to do before um, services and stuff like that. Very excellent. I highly recommend it. And you can read one devotional per day, I believe, on the Banner of Truth Valley Vision website. But that's it for Beyond Luther Part 5. Next year, we'll do something that's Beyond Luther. Go ahead and go to ChristTheCure.org to the contact page and email me and tell me what you'd like to hear about in regards to... Beyond Luther. We can focus maybe on Switzerland. We can go to the Westminster or the Reformed Baptist. We can we can even do the Lutheran Reformation. We'll just wait till after um, Luther's time has passed. But that means that we still have to discuss Luther. So we'll see. You leave your suggestions. Um, if you wouldn't mind, also, if you've been a listener of the show and you appreciate the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, it's always appreciated. And that's it. God bless you all. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.